Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Hope you've been doing our 100 days through the Bible. Uh, This last week, we focused on Saul and David. This next week, we'll focus a little more on David and our reading, but then we'll move on to his son Solomon, the next king, and then into uh, some of the prophets. We're going to be moving through history very, very quickly. And this last week, one of the things that you may have noticed, in fact, it's not distinct to last week, uh, this has been true every week, we came across some very unusual events. In fact, there were some things last week, especially what you read on Friday, if you're reading along with our plan, uh, there, there were some things that will make you scratch your head and ask some really difficult questions. And I want you to know that I think that is a good thing. It, it is a good thing that the Bible makes us scratch our head and ask these tough questions for a few reasons. First of all, it is a good thing because it becomes uh, one piece of evidence for the historicity of Scripture. Let me tell you what I mean. When, when you look at Scripture, had these stories just been made up, were these just fables or myths, then they would be smoothed out a little bit. Somebody would have cleaned them up. In fact, one of the ways that historians who will read ancient documents determine if those documents reflect history or they reflect a myth is they look to see how smooth the stories are, how cleaned up the stories are. And if everything happens just as you would have expected it to happen, then those historians are suspicious about the veracity of what they're reading. But if those stories contain difficult things, then that turns out to be sort of the fingerprints of truth in those stories, and they consider those historical documents. Well, all throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, we see these fingerprints of truth. God's word rings true. So that's one of the good things about coming across these difficult stories. Another good thing is because these stories cause us to dig a little deeper. They cause us to ask some really hard questions, and when we question things, that's when we learn. If there are no questions, if things just sort of uh, go about exactly as you would have anticipated, then there will be very little learning. But when the questions drive us to deep, think deeper and to dig deeper, then we learn. Another good reason to come across these, these stories that challenge us is because they will shake us out of our worldview. Oftentimes we think things about ourselves and about life and about God that just aren't true. And so we need to be confronted with the truth. We need it to shake us up a little bit so that we can adjust to what is true and we can see things through the right lenses. And what we read on Friday, 2 Samuel chapter 6, is just such a story. And this event is going to challenge you today, if you've not read it. Uh, This, uh, you're gonna read things, we're gonna read things together here uh, that you are going to think are unfair and unreasonable and unjust. You're gonna shake your head and wonder if God could have really done what this passage says that he has done. And that's a good thing. It's gonna shake us up this morning, uh, but, but I think it'll, it'll encourage us and it'll teach us at the same time. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, let's just begin to read in verse 1. The Bible says, David again assembled all the fit men in Israel, 30,000, 
And he and all of his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. And the ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now let's just stop there and make sure you understand what the ark is. This is not Noah's ark. This is not a boat, but it is a piece of furniture uh, that God had instructed them to build. And this piece of furniture now represents the presence of God. They didn't worship the ark. It It wasn't something that they would bow to, but they would take the ark from location to location because wherever the ark was, that represented the presence of God. It represented the beauty of God, the value of God, the holiness of God. It was constructed in in, in just such a way that it would remind them of many of these great attributes of God. The ark represented the presence of God. And so David said, I want the ark in the capital city. I want us to bring the ark to the city of David. And so that's what uh, has, uh, is happening here in this passage. Verse three says, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and they brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And then look at verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And so it's on a cart headed to the city of David. Uh, the oxen stumble, they step in a pothole, the, the ark is about to fall off the cart. So what should Yuza do? Well, he pulls out his, he holds out his hand and he steadies it. Verse seven says, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died there next to the ark of God. So Uzzah reaches out his hands because he's going to steady the ark to keep it from falling off the cart. And God is angry about this. And so then God strikes Uzzah dead because of what he's done. And there he lies. Let's continue to read. Verse 8, David, who is the king, was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And so he named the place outburst against Uzzah. Not a very creative name, but uh, nonetheless, and it is called that today. Now, do the actions of the Lord, let's just be honest. I know we're in church and you don't want to give an honest answer to this question, but do the actions of the Lord against Uzzah right here, do they seem to you to be unfair, unreasonable, and unjust? Well, I hope they do. Because if they do, then that gives us a chance to recognize that we think about things one way and God thinks about things a different way. And now we can adjust from how we think about things to how God thinks about things. So let's just admit it. Right here, it seems like God is being unfair, unreasonable, and unjust. Uzzah was just trying to help. He was doing his very best. What else could he have done? And God strikes him down with what seems to be no real, uh, no real reason, no real justification. Now, of course we know that 
what God did was right. And when there's a problem between how I see things and how God sees things, that I'm the one who is wrong and I'm the one who needs to make an adjustment. So let's look back at this event and ask, how do we need to adjust our thinking so that it matches what, what God says is true? And I think there are several adjustments, three, four, five, I don't remember, four adjustments that we need to make to our thinking that we see right here in this account uh, so that we will think like God thinks. Adjustment number one, God honors a thorough knowledge of his word. First thing we learn here is that God really honors us if we thoroughly know God's word, exactly what God has said. And we need to adjust to that fact. There is an expectation that we would be experts on God's word. Now, what you may not know here is that God had previously given very specific instructions for how the ark was to be transported. Very specific instructions. In fact, in Numbers chapter four, verse 15, God says it was only to be transported by the Levites. In fact, he even identified a certain family uh, in that larger family, and those people only were to transport the ark. In Exodus chapter 25, God said the ark was only to be transported with poles. So the ark had these rings on the side, and there were poles in the rings, and God said the only way the ark is to be moved is if you pick it up with the poles and you move it that way. And then in Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, God said that the poles should be placed on the shoulders of the Levites and they were to march together to move the ark. And so God had given very specific instructions for how it was to be moved, yet that's not how they were moving the ark in this account, right? Now, the people who were moving the ark or the people who were directing this event did they not know what God said or did they not care what God said about moving the ark? Well, we, we don't know for certain. The Bible doesn't say. But we do know that in every other instance, they are very careful with the ark. Uh, to the extreme in these other instances and how they would place it in the tabernacle and who could go see it and when and all of these special rules that they were obedient to. In every other instance in the Bible, they are so careful with the ark that I think we can assume here that the problem was these people just didn't know. They had forgotten that God had given such specific instructions. And so because they didn't have a thorough knowledge of God's word, Uzzah suffers and, and he dies. We need to know that God expects us to know his word. We need to have a thorough knowledge of his word. In fact, it's interesting when God was uh, preparing for the first king, and David is the second king of Israel, uh, but in this section, this, this historical period that we're reading, God has given instructions to prepare these kings. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. God has given instructions to prepare these kings. And some of those instructions are found in Deuteronomy 17. So listen to these instructions that God gave for the future king of Israel. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. God said, when you have a king, the first thing he's to do is to write his own 
copy of God's word. Now they didn't have God's word like this. It would, would have been just the first five books of your Bible in those days. Uh, but they said the king, it is so important that he knows God's word. The king should start by writing down in his own hand, his own copy of God's word. And then it says in the next verse, it is to remain with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. See, God expected them to be experts in God's word and God expects us to have a very thorough knowledge of God's word. God's word is not valuable to us just because it's handy. I think sometimes we think if we have God's word on our bookcase, if we have God's word in our, on our coffee table or under the seat in the car, because that's where we left it last Sunday, uh, that somehow like a good luck charm, God's word is valuable. But we see from scripture that God's word is only valuable when we know it and when we use it. In fact, David goes on to say that the word of God is a lamp for his feet and a light for his path. It shines a light, but it only shines the light when we know it and when we, when we follow it. And so here, Uzzah, why did he die? Why did Uzzah die? Well, because he did not have, and it seems that David as well, King David, did not have a thorough knowledge of God's word. So when we see this story, it looks unreasonable, but the first adjustment we need to make in our thinking so that this story will seem reasonable because it was reasonable to God is we need to accept and embrace the fact that God expects us to have a thorough knowledge of his word. Now, the second adjustment we need to make is this. God cares about the details of our obedience. You know, there are no superfluous words in the Bible. There are no words here that, that, that don't have meaning and don't have value. There are no instructions that we can just ignore. God has given us these words and every one of them has value to us. And every instruction, every command is to be obeyed. Um, I flipped through some instruction manuals this week. And I, I meant to bring one of those out for you this morning and didn't. But it's interesting. You get these instruction manuals. You buy a lawnmower or you buy a blender or you buy whatever. And you get an instruction manual. Uh, you've looked at these. What, what's the first half of the instruction manual? It's just it's just crazy stuff. It's just, it's safety warnings. And in fact, the one I was looking at at the office a little earlier was uh, from a lawnmower that the church has. And I noticed it said, if you back up, first look behind you. I thought that was a good, good thing. It, 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 it cautioned against using it inside or using it at dark. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's filled with just we just needless things. If you want to know how to, how to work the lawnmower, you, you turn to like page 10. You start reading there. Well, God's word's not like that. Every page counts. I remember several years ago, I bought a piece of Ikea furniture. You ever, you ever bought some Ikea furniture? Well, don't, okay? <laughs> it's like a part-time job putting that stuff together. And so I, I got this piece of furniture. And it was a big piece of furniture, but it came in a little bitty box. That should have given me a clue. And so I start putting it together. 
and it must have had 10,000 steps in this, in this book. I'm not a real instruction manual kind of person. I just show me a picture of what it's supposed to look like in the end and I'll do my best. But I was trying to follow as many of the steps as I could and I noticed that several of the pieces were to pieces of, of shelving and wood uh, were to be put together by these little dowels. And the wood was pre-drilled, and so there wasn't a, you know, a lot of hard work to it. You just had to put the dowels in and press it together. So it said in the instructions specifically, so there are two pieces. This may be hard to picture, but there are you know, two pieces that you're trying to join, piece A and piece B. And so the instructions said to put the dowel first in piece A, not in piece B first, first in piece A, and then put the pieces together. Well, I thought it doesn't matter. The dowel's going to end up in both pieces eventually anyway, right? It seems to me like it would be much easier to put it in piece B and then put it together. So I did it the way that, you know, I'm a smart guy, I thought. Um, I did it the way I thought would be better. Well, it turned out that, that one piece of wood had more friction when it held the dowel than the other piece of wood. And if you did it my way, which seemed perfectly logical, and you put them together, then it drove the dowel out the other end through the veneer and it ruined the, ruined the piece of furniture. So now here's the lesson. That's how God's word works. Every command in God's word is important whether we understand it or not. So did it matter how they transported the ark? Did it matter if the ark was on a cart or was on the poles? Did it really matter? Well, it did matter. And those commands that somebody might have dismissed because they didn't seem very relevant, they didn't seem very important, who cares how the ark gets moved? Well, God cares how the ark gets moved. Every command God gives matters. God cares about the details of our uh, obedience. Now, the next thing, the next adjustment we need to make in order to understand this event is this. Good intentions do not make up for disobedience. Now, I think this is the strongest pushback in this story. How in the world could God judge Uzzah when he was just acting on good intentions? He saw the ark was about to fall. Uh, he saw that it was shaky, that it was unsteady, the cart had slipped into a pothole or something, and, and he had the best of intentions. He wasn't trying to be rebellious. He wasn't trying to, uh, to, to blaspheme the Lord. He, he just was trying to steady the ark. What's the big deal? And, and even if he would have known that the commands forbid that, he, he, was, he had the best of intentions. How could God judge him so severely? Well, when we begin to justify our actions based on good intentions, we're on dangerous ground. And let, let me tell you why. Number one, because we risk placing our judgment ahead of the Lord's judgment. See, God has told us to do it this way. And if I look at this and say, well, I know God has said to do it this way, but I, you know, I, I'm with the Lord, Lord, I'm with you, but I just think there is a better way to do it in this situation. God, you must not have anticipated where I would be today or the situation I would be in today. You may have said to do it this way, but I really think it should be done that way. Well, if I do that, I have placed my judgment above the Lord's judgment. 
And that's wrong. We can't decide what commands we're going to obey or disobey based on our good intentions. Our good intentions are not a part of the equation. If we base it on our good intentions, we're saying that our intentions are above God's judgment. And that certainly isn't true. The second reason why we're on dangerous ground if we start measuring our obedience by good intentions is that we risk focusing more on the outcome than on honoring the Lord. This is hard to explain, but I think it's very important. The big goal in 2 Samuel chapter 6 was not to move the ark to the city of David. Now, they may have thought that was their goal, but that that really wasn't the goal in all of this, or it shouldn't have been the goal. The goal was to honor God, and they honored God by being obedient, and they honored God by being, being submissive. But what happened is they were moving the ark. They thought that the real point of all of this was to get the ark to Jerusalem. And if the goal is just to get the ark to Jerusalem, well, then, you know, a cart is fine. If the goal is just to get the ark to Jerusalem, we could put it on a train or in the back of a pickup truck. I mean, we could, you know, we, we could slide it on the turf. I mean, if the goal is just to get the ark to Jerusalem, then a lot of things might be permissible. But that wasn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was to bring honor to God. Now, here's how that intersects with our lives. What's our goal? Our goal cannot ultimately be to accomplish some task that's that's before us. Our goal can't ultimately be uh, to get uh, a promotion or to get a job. Our goal can't ultimately be to get a certain amount of money. Our, our goal can't ultimately be to reach some level of success. Our goal can't ultimately be to get a husband or to get a wife. Now, we, th- those may be things that happen and those may be desirable things, but the ultimate goal for us has to be what? To bring honor to God. And see, if we make our goal in life a task. I got to get a job. I got to get married. I got to, I got to, I got to do something Then That's going to end up justifying all kinds of compromises along the way. But if we, if we find a shortcut to get to our goal that, that forfeits God being honored, then we've missed the point because the goal is not the thing. The goal is to honor God. And here they put getting the art to Jerusalem above anything else, and that justified their, uh, their, their disobedience in their mind. And so we have to understand uh, that good intentions, for whatever reason, do not make up for disobedience. And then the fourth thing that we have to adjust to, the fourth truth is highlighted in this account, is that we are way more wicked and God is way more holy than we can imagine. We're way more wicked. We, we struggle with this. God is way more holy uh, than we can imagine. I think when we look at this, this account, 2 Samuel 6, uh, one of the reasons why people get so upset about this is because they just don't think uh, that the punishment fits the crime. So Yuza was not supposed to steady the ark. He was not supposed to have put it on a cart to start with. David should have never allowed that to happen. So you can say, okay, Uzzah broke the rules. But come on, Lord. I mean, don't strike him dead. 
I mean, g- give him a $1,000 fine or something, or, or give him house arrest for three months. But, but this just, it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. Here, Uzzah has just, I mean, it's just a minor rule that he has broken. It's just a, a minor issue. Why does God strike him dead for doing this? Well, we find that difficult to understand because we just struggle with the fact that we are so wicked and God is so holy. So, so let me explain it this way. Let, let, let's put ourselves in Uzzah's mind. Uh, Uzzah, his biggest problem is that he was not aware of his own sinfulness. So he's walking along next to the ark and Uzzah wants to protect the ark. It's, it's slipping and because they've hit a hole, it's about to fall. And Uzzah's thinking is this, I don't want the ark of the covenant of the Lord to fall in a mud puddle because it'll get what? It'll get dirty. Wouldn't that be a shame if the ark that represented the presence of God, the holiness of God, if the ark of God got, got, fell in a mud puddle? And so Uzzah made a calculation, and this is where he messed up. He thought that his hands were less dirty than the mud puddle. But he was wrong. You see, the dirt had never rebelled against God. The dirt had never blasphemed God by ignoring his instructions. The the dirt had never sinned against the Lord, but Uzzah had. You see, the ark was not gonna be polluted by the dirt. The ark risked being polluted by the hands of the sinner, Uzzah. When he put his hands out, he assumed that somehow he was less dirty. His hands were less dirty than the dirt. But that was not the case. And he had forgotten the fact that that he was so sinful and that God was so holy. God had communicated that to them. We we read about the Ten Commandments a a couple of weeks ago and how God says you can't even come up on the mountain while I'm I'm communicating with, with Moses because I'm holy. There has to be a distance. You have to be separated. If you come in contact with me, you will die because you are guilty of sin and I am so holy. There is this separation. And Uzzah didn't understand that. And the reason why we struggle with this story, and I think the reason why we struggle with so many things in life is, is for the very same reason. We don't understand just how sinful we are and just how holy God is. That's why we're uncomfortable with Romans 6.23. The Bible says in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. And when I preach that, when you tell people that, you can see it on their faces. I don't believe that. I don't really believe that my sin deserves death. How could the Bible say that? How could the preacher keep keep quoting that verse? I mean, I know there's some people whose sins deserve death, but not mine. Mine aren't so bad. We struggle with Romans 6.23 because we don't understand how sinful we are and how holy God is. I think we struggle with the cross. We, we, we tell stories and we sing songs about the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. But I think there's something inside many of us that just really thinks that that was unnecessary. God, couldn't you just have forgiven us? 
Did you really have to allow your son to be beaten, to be crucified, to bleed, to suffer, to die such a, such a violent and a bloody death on the cross? Was that really necessary because of my sins? We struggle with that because we don't understand how sinful we are and we don't understand how holy God is. And it's interesting, we're reading 2 Samuel 6, I think it was in verse 7, no, I think it's verse 8. It says that David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. Well, David didn't understand this either. David says, says David was angry that God killed Uzzah. David should have been thankful that God didn't kill every single one of them, right? I mean, this is the surprising thing here isn't that God killed Uzzah. The surprising thing is that God didn't just kill all of them. See, we all struggle with this, that, that we are guilty of sin and our sin deserves death. And God is perfect and holy and righteous and has never compromised and has never sinned. And God can't have fellowship with us because of our sin apart from Christ. And so if we're going to understand the story, we have to make these adjustments. And the last one is just that. We have to adjust to the fact that we're way more wicked and God is way more holy than we can possibly imagine. Now, I, I believe that the best way to look at this event in 2 Samuel 6 is to see that it is really, it is really a setup for what happens next. And so here we see that they failed to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The next part of the story, they're going to succeed in bringing the art to, to Jerusalem. And, and I think the, the failure really sets up what they're going to do. You're going to be able to see, when we, when we see how they bring the ark in, you're going to see how they did it the right way. And, and, and there, there's much to learn there. I do want to read some of this to you. So let's look at verse 11. Still in 2 Samuel 6, verse 11 says, uh, the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. So uh, when God struck Uzzah down, they just found the closest guy and said, hey, the ark's staying with you. Can you imagine being that guy? But it worked out well because he had the presence of God, and God blessed. Verse 12, it was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and had the ark of God brought from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. And so now he's going to try again to bring, it to, uh, to bring it to the city of David. You see the result in verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. And so this is a, they've worshiped God. They've brought the presence of God in. Verse 18, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. And the next verse is pretty important. It says, then he distributed a loaf of bread and a date cake and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. And they all went home. Have you ever wondered why we have donuts in our Sunday school classes? That's the verse. So they worship God. And when the worship was over, they gave them date cakes and raisin cakes. You know why? Because there were no donut stores. All right, you follow with me? And then they ate and went home. That's, uh, so we try to do the same thing. No, no, not seriously. Now from here, what I want to do is, is draw your attention to 1 Chronicles 15. Don't turn there. Just trust me a minute. 
Because that's a parallel passage of scripture and it tells us exactly how they were successful in worshiping God the second time. We've seen how they failed the first time. That's the story of how they were successful the second time. We don't have time to do that. So uh, we're going to do that tonight. And so tonight we're going to pick up in 1 Chronicles 15. We'll pick up right there in your outline. And I want to share with you how to worship the Lord. We've seen how they failed to worship the Lord. Now we're going to see how they succeeded. And we'll do that tonight. But I I want to say something to close the message. Tonight we're going to talk about how to worship the Lord. Let me just take a minute and, and point out to you from what we've already read why we should worship the Lord. And I want you to see Christ in this story. All of these Old Testament passages we're reading, I want you to see Jesus Christ in every one of them. And most weeks we're pausing to point out that to you. And so let me do that right now. Why should we worship the Lord? Well, first of all, because God is holy. We ought to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God is more pure than we can imagine, more righteous, more holy. We we, we, we worship him because of his perfection, because of his beauty and his holiness. We worship him for that reason. And because God is holy, God is separated from us and his wrath is poured out on sin because God cannot compromise because God is holy. And so his wrath is poured out on sin. Now, we, we look to what happens here with Uzzah in, 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 in 2 Samuel 6, and here's what we should recognize. Every one of us, we're Uzzah, and we all deserve the very same punishment. Every time I sin, every time I know what God has told me to do, and I do something different from that, I have reached out to steady the ark. I have rebelled against the Lord. I have blasphemed the Lord by by ignoring his word. Every time you sin, every time I sin, I become user. And I deserve for God to strike me down. There's no sin I commit that's not just as bad as user's sin. There's no sin you commit that does not deserve for God to do to you what he did to Yuza. So why doesn't it happen? Why are we still walking around? Because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. See, this, this story of Yuza, it, it's hard to understand until you get to the, you realize. But once you realize, you realize everything. I am Yuza. And I deserve to die. Yesterday, over and over, I deserve to die. The day before and the day before. And the only reason I'm alive is because Jesus on the cross took what I deserved. Why should we worship God? Because he is holy. And because Jesus has made a way. And there's no better news in the world than that. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to stand, and we're just going to celebrate. I've asked uh, asked Andre to just pick a song of celebration, whatever he thought was was, was best. And and we're just going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And I want you to sing with vigor. I want this to be a celebration. I want you to imagine your your team just won the football game. I, I want you to imagine that there's nothing greater than this because this is the greatest. 
If you need to make a decision, you come down while we're singing. If you've never trusted what Christ has done for you, then you come down. Let us talk to you about that. If God's led you to join our church, you, you come. We'll wait. But I want us to celebrate. We, we've seen how worship can go wrong. Tonight we're going to see how, to, how it should go right. But I want, I want right now in your minds for this, this, this truth to just rattle around there. Why should we worship? Because he is holy and because Jesus has made a way. Father, I know I'm user. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sort of user. I, I, I'm not almost as bad as user. I am user. And I deserve to be struck down. And I've deserved it a thousand times over again. But you have held your hand. And Jesus has absorbed your wrath. Thank you. And I worship you for your holiness and for your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.